You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. I want to talk about when we're home, when we're really at home. When When do we feel most at home? It's a question that I want you to think about during Advent, this season of anticipation, to imagine more clearly, in order to imagine more clearly what it's like to not be home, to not be at home. Get in touch with the most intimate place, intimate time you feel at home, so that you know when you're not there. Does that make sense? Figure out how, what is it like to be in a strange place, to come into contact with your own strangeness, your own estrangement, you might say. I like, I like coming home. I like, I, like, I like being at home, too. I've come to realize this. As I've grown older, I like being at home more than I did when I was younger. Philadelphia feels like my home. At least my earthly, my earthly city, if you will. I feel like I belong here. Even a little day trip out to South Jersey. I cross the Ben Franklin Bridge and I see the skyline and I think, oh, I'm home. I finally made it back, you know. If I'm in a, I go to school out in the suburbs, and, and when I, when I, uh, on the on the Schuylkill Expressway, that turn right by the right, right where I see the skyline for the first time, I feel, hey, we made it. We made it back, even though it was only like a couple hours but it still feels like a journey to me. Um, my mother feels that way too when she flies into Egypt as the, as the, as the plane kind of uh, comes in for the landing, she sees the pyramids and they become an icon of home for her. I think that kind of thing is good for us to feel like, you know, if you happen to be so secure that you're at home everywhere, you kind of miss, you, you, What's that? Wait, what was she saying? I was interested. All are welcome, including Siri. If you feel at home everywhere, you 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 miss out on something, right? Get a get a get a sense of who you are, where you feel home, um, and that's that that's that's good for us, I think. And, and specifically in my, I like my kitchen. I like to hang out in my kitchen. Sometimes I just stand around in there, you know, um, doing nothing. Just that's, that's where I want to be for some reason. Um, what? Oh, I will soon. And I organize my kitchen in a, in a, a way that's comprehensible for me. Only me, generally. I know where the tools are. I know how to use it. I know how to get around. I like that. I, like, I feel very comfortable. You know, kind of wearing a glove that fits. It's like a proprietary kitchen, though. It could be a nightmare for you, but I know how it works. Um, I know where the things are. I know how to use them. I feel comfortable in it. You know, I know where my knives are. Home is where my knives are. That's how I think. Want to see the collection? There it is. Very proud of my knife collection. And so I take pictures of it and then show it to my friends. It's a little excessive, I know. And you might... Nothing nefarious is happening with these knives. So there's no, I guess unless you're a vegetarian, but I'm not butchering any animals live. Um, 
I don't, why do I, I can't, I always feel like I have to defend myself, you know? I just like them, okay? And I feel comfortable with them. And I, I kind of want to carry them around with me just in case I need to make a sandwich or something like that. Like, I feel like that, that connected to them. The other day I was at my sister's house and I was cooking there and I could tell she didn't want me to cook. I could, I could feel the uh, imposition that I had, even in my own family's house. And I was making a salad, which of course involves uh, frying bacon for some reason, <laughs> is usually how my salads end up. And she was, and, and I felt uncomfortable because I was like, hey, do you have saran wrap? Do you have a cutting board? Do you have a jar? I need a jar. Do you have a paring knife? Where's the paring knife? By the cake. Why is the, why is the paring knife by the cake? You know, and I don't, I feel, I feel out of place. I don't like, ever cook in a vacation home? It's impossible. You know, and you get a knife out and it can't cut anything, right? What's that? You bring your own knives. That's what I should do. I should bring the whole collection everywhere I go. That's, that's how I feel. That's, I would feel at home that way. I feel uncomfortable in places that I'm not so used to. And I, I want to get, get into that feeling because the comfort and the security, even in my own kitchen, where I know I'm not a stranger, when I don't feel alone, unknown, and I feel something different, that security, that uh, attachment, that confidence, even being provided for. I'm kind of going over the top here. But that's how I feel in that zone. When do you feel like that? That's the question I want you to think about. When do you not feel like that? I think we need to get in touch with our sense of being home and being estranged. Finding, being found, and being lost. There's a, an important sense of being lost for us. We'll sing, I wonder as I wander, the other day. Wandering is a, an important part of our journey. Because we're not really home here. Getting in touch with that unlocks something inside of us that helps us to welcome someone else, to empathize with someone else. You can see this palpably worked out in front of us. We're thinking about welcoming the stranger, and you might just go to the political when we think about this, and I actually think that's appropriate too. That's not the only place you might go though. But since we're here, we have asylum seekers, right? People who are seeking asylum, um, being, being told before they get there, you will be denied this. You know, you can manufacture any crisis you want. And they're being gassed at the border, as you know. This is kind of an American tradition. Regardless of the administration, we generally, that's, that's, the, that's a thing we do for some reason. Um, so even, even with, the, with the old exec executive and the current one, there's some hostility toward uh, people at our border. And these people are looking for a home. They're looking for a safety. They want, they want, they want um, to be secure. Um, it's challenging. Uh, to, it's hard for me to even see it because I know even when you get here, you're not really going to be home yet. You know, we haven't created a hospitable environment. It's troubling, right? And then I also have to learn to empathize with people who feel invaded upon by somebody else. There are people who uh, believe that their sense of home will be ruined by the inclusion of someone else. And I'm quick to condemn that kind of thinking because I'm woke, right? But before I jump to that condemnation and that judgment, understanding that people are experiencing something else, 
and they feel like they don't have a real sense of place. They don't, they're not really sure where they are. They're not that secure. Especially that like a brown-skinned person would affect them so much. Your sense of home and your security isn't that great because it's so fragile. Something little can just disrupt us. So you don't really feel at home either, do you? We all don't. That's what could bind us together, don't you see, right? There's, there's a movement that we could do together. God could be moving us to do that. Think about all the ways that we're segmented from each other, how we're divided into tribes, into almost every possible, every, everything imaginable. And, 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 and we live in a kind of separated existence. And that separation actually divides up our morality, our ethics, if you will. Too many people think that we just need to let go of our differences. Let bygones be bygones, and we can live united. As if a reconciliation process isn't necessary. For the Christian, our goal is not just to get along. It's not just to be kind. God authors our getting along. God authors our reconciliation. We aren't home when we're united, but ignore our differences. We're at home when God unites us and reconciles our differences. If you're at home and you're ignoring differences, or you're at home and united with people that are just like you, it's not very hard. But to be together and to be different, that's the key. To name our differences and to live in a reconciled community, that's real powerful. That's the idea. I want to say this another way. We're divided up in, in a lot of ways, sometimes arbitrarily, sometimes through no choice of our own. We can't reduce the ways that we're segmented into just preference. There's more than that happening. It's not just Pepsi versus Coke, as they used to say. We're, we're existentially divided up as a matter of our even um, existence, right? Our, our even sense of being divides us up. We, we're, we're, we're divided up in an in, in embodied sense. So for example, my skin color means something because it was assigned meaning. And it wasn't arbitrarily assigned meaning. It was assigned meaning by an interested person, someone with interests. So it's not just random. There's something specific happening here. I know it objectively doesn't mean anything. I know race is a social construct, but it still means something, and I still feel it, even though we name the fact that it's not rooted in objective reality, like my DNA. Like the only thing that's real is what I can measure. Right? Then there's more to reality than what you can observe. Right? We have to do the hard work of uh, being united, being at home among the, the human race and among creation. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is uniting us unto himself, is what the uh, writer of Colossians says, what Paul says. And on this first Sunday of Advent, we're thinking of the Savior that's coming, this baby Savior. Strange, strange in his own right. Babies are kind of strange in general. Jesus was particularly strange. He's coming to get in touch with our strangeness, our out of place, our, our out of placement in order to find, in order so that we might find our place in him, our home in him. And as a result, one another. Jesus welcomes us 
so that we can welcome others. Jesus matches our strangeness with his own strangeness. And there's some, uh, there's a connection that happens there. The idea is we're at home in Jesus, and so we welcome people into the fold of Jesus, the sheepfold. Jesus will meet you where you are. I can, I can, I can rest on that. Even when the church doesn't. Even when this church doesn't, you know, or this pastor doesn't. In order, to, in order to give us some language to describe our strangeness, we're working through the strangeness of the characters symbolized by this wreath. These people symbolized by it. We're with the prophets this week, then John the Baptist, Mary, and, and sometimes Joseph, and then the shepherds and magi. Sometimes the angels get lumped in. We just add everybody that we missed to the last week. So we're imagining their strangeness and f- to find ours. We're, we're thinking about their experiences to relate. We're relating. We're connecting. The prophets begin our story, and it's good that we started with, O come, O come, Emmanuel. These people who wrote these powerful words looking for a home, looking for a sense of belonging, and couldn't find it. The prophet's at home in, in, in her prayer, in her meditation, in her communion with God. Because they are not at home in the world. The world speaks to them in a language that they don't understand. The world tells them to do things with an agency that seems foreign. The world uh, makes conclusions about things and knows things with a... Uh, with an epistemology that's different than theirs, a, uh, a way of knowing things that's different than theirs. So the prophets are calling us into a new epistemology, a new agency, a new vernacular, new vocabulary. We're saying things, we're doing things, and we're knowing things differently than how the world supplies it for us. There's something very unique about how the, prover- the, proverbs, the, the, the prophets work this out. The prophets are uh, hyperbolically sensitive to the things that not being as God wanted them to be. And that level of uh, idealism, idealism makes them annoying, right? But it also makes them lonely and misunderstood. Like when the prophet uh, confronts the evil king Ahab. Ahab's the most evil king in Israel. And he says, oh, and he calls the prophet Ahab, talks to him, and he says, oh, you troubler of Israel. How many times have you heard that? You're just a troublemaker. You're just causing problems. Why are you always, why, why are you, why are you always picking things apart? Why do you always point out what doesn't work? Why are you always talking about racism? Why is everything racist with you? Why do you make everything racial? Why is that sexist? You know, ever hear this? You might have, you, some, of, some of you get criticized for this because you have, a, you have a precise way of looking at these things. And not all of us have that gift, and that's okay. We don't all need to strive to be prophetic. We're, we're, we're moving towards listening to our prophets, not just being our own. They get distressed, estranged, um, 
lonely because they're never understood. And, 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 and the trouble with the prophet is she's alone because no one understands her and no one will listen to her. Not only are you being ignored in the, uh, on the, uh, before anything happens, after it happens, you're distressed because what you predicted would happen did. Jerusalem did crumble if you're uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah is not saying, I told you so, and getting some satisfaction out of being right. He's really saying, I wish I was wrong. I wish it didn't work out this way. I, I, I didn't wish this on you, and I wish you would have listened to me. I'm sad that you won't. I'm sad that I'm ignored. And of course, I'm sad at the results. That's why I'm a prophet. I'm not happy about it. They're out of place. They're grieving. They're alone. As they, as they empathize with the pathos of God, as they feel what God feels, they grieve. They're alone. Some of you can relate to that. You might feel out of place because you see things a little differently than the rest of us. You might, you might struggle to even put language on it. You might uh, think you're summarily ignored by people in power. You might think your ideas are too idealistic to work in this world because you haven't come up with some um, evidence-based way to solve all of our problems. Most kings don't want critics around them. The good kings keep the prophets with them. And they, hold, they, they have a relationship. That's important. And it's funny because even as we read today's prophets, we, do, we, do, we, we can tend to do two things as we read them. One, misunderstand their words, typical for a prophet. But two, misunderstand their, their, uh, the sense of home, the sense of isolation. The sense of homelessness, if you will, and the sense of isolation that the recipients of their, of their words had. So I want to work through the most famous Christmas prophecy. Maybe this is why we're even observing the prophets during Advent. It's just a few verses in chapter 9 of Isaiah. And we'll work on, we'll, we'll work on what it means and how we can, how we can use it today. Um, someone out loud read Isaiah 9, and if there's no volunteers, I'll just read it. But maybe someone can read it. It's two, 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 uh, two slides. God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace. To the throne of David and his kingdom, he will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time onward and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You hear this prophecy a lot, especially during uh, Christmas time. And especially verses 6 and 7, we often hear as a, 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 this is prophesying Jesus. Not really. It's not really about Jesus. And I, I, I want to work with that with you for a second. Um, it's not about the baby savior. You can be tempted to jump right to that point. But when you do that, you misunderstand the prophet and misunderstand the people. And we're working on not misunderstanding the prophet, who is perpetually misunderstood, and welcoming somebody who might be different than us, which these people are, since we're generally, I imagine most of us are Gentiles. Right? I mean, I don't know. You don't have to out yourself right now if you, if you don't want to say, hey, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a woman of the tribe. And this, this language, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, seems like divine language. We use it to describe Jesus. It's about, if we go back to verse 1, you'll see it sets up the scenario for you. This is about a specific local occasion. It has, we'll get to what it does later, but there's, a, there's anguish in tribal regions in the north of Israel that's under Assyrian control. They have a real palpable enemy. Isaiah is prophesying that a king, a son, has been born right now, will liberate us from the Assyrians. We think that uh, it could be Hezekiah, Hezekiah who, uh, who uh, frees the, the southern kingdom of Judah from the Assyrians. And maybe Isaiah is hoping for a united kingdom. This is all happening in the 8th century, the 8th century BC. And for people reading it, this sort of prophecy made sense. When we don't rest with the people or know them, we kind of skip over their whole story. And I, th I, I think we need to hold it for a moment and name it because a lot of times people get forgotten. This is all happening in the 8th century. The people understand it. They aren't thinking of an infant savior that will come in the first century. The divine language here is commonly used to describe kings. And it would be very bizarre for them to conclude that some sort of God-man, Jesus, would be born at this point, saving us. They were thinking of a king that would liberate the northern kingdom, that would liberate them from the Assyrians, you know, and I think it's a helpful way to read the prophecy because a lot of the language that we get into here doesn't really describe Jesus as we know him, right? Not some uh, military monarch, right? Not a very visible throne. We make the prophecy very figurative in order to make it primarily about Jesus. Matthew, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, He's typing the gospel. Um, 
Isn't that weird? <laughs> Isaiah 9. He quotes Isaiah 9, 1 in, uh, in Matthew 4, right as Jesus is starting his public ministry after he's been tempted. Um, and, and, and you can see the exact quotation here. Now when he heard that John, this is John the Baptist, his week's next week, had been arrested, he withdrew from Galilee, leaving Nazareth, and he, and he, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea into the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. He went up to the north. That's exactly where Isaiah was prophesying. And so, what was, so that what was spoken about, spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region. And the shadow of death on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is bringing his own kind of unique fulfillment to this prophecy. Matthew's making a geographical point, but I think it could be more than that. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's more than Isaiah ever knew. It's more than the people in the 8th century knew. That's not to say they didn't have a local significant meaning for them, but it meant more than that. There's a small prophecy that Isaiah is making that is relevant to his own time and place. We're, we're learning, we're, we're, we're getting to hold that and know that so that we can understand the prophet, so that we can understand the people, but also so that we can understand our own time and place and how the words of the Bible actually affect us in our time and place. They, just, they are not just theological abstractions about some savior that's distant from us. No, something is being enacted in reality today just as it was in 8th century Israel. This small prophecy is being widened by Matthew, you might say. What, what we have then is Isaiah promising a king that will liberate the north, maybe unite the kingdoms. But with Matthew, we have one that will unite Israel and the whole world. Matthew is using this prophecy to foreshadow Jesus' prophecy. I don't even suspect Matthew, in reading Isaiah 9, suspects it's about Jesus. I think he's just using it that way. He's making a connection. He's using a literary tool because he's writing to Jewish people who would be very familiar with the prophecy. When Luke mentions the birth of Jesus, he doesn't run to Isaiah 9. John doesn't mention it at all, neither does Mark. So the other gospel writers, two of whom happen to be born and bred Jewish, don't use the prophecy in the same way because the prophecy had a significant local meaning for them. Matthew is then using it in a different way capacity in a different fashion. It would be later theologians that drew this connection explicitly and would be able to plainly say, no, Isaiah 9 is about Jesus. It meant something local and distinct to the people in the 8th century. We're holding that space so that we can listen to the prophet, listen to the people of the time, and apply it today, too. I think Christians generally should use the story, use the, uh, the prophecy, as Matthew did, we're connecting the old story with what's happening now, connecting us with our past and into our future. We read the whole Bible in light of what Jesus says. The gospel changes how we read the Bible, read the story. It changes how we read it. It doesn't change the story. One writer said, Jesus isn't true because he was miraculously predicted 700 years ago. Rather, 
because Jesus is true, we change how we read the Bible. Israel's story gets reframed around him. Isaiah is saying something specific for his time and place. But as he listens to God, which I think the prophets specifically do, they're delivering a message that's bigger than themselves. In their own smallness, they might feel alone, frustrated, without a place. Israel feels conquered and alone. God feels for them too. God a prophet in his own right saying, no, I told you not to get involved in all this. But you did, and now you're alone, and my heart's broken. Isaiah's heart's broken too. I still think what is locally prophesied about in Isaiah and expanded in Matthew would be recognizable to the prophet. That he could see Jesus and say, no, maybe that was Maybe that was it. Maybe that's what God was, was, was maybe, that, maybe that was another part of what God was leading me to. He knows God. He's with God. If he saw the baby Savior, I suspect he would see God too. He's working on the same vision. You might struggle to see where God is, where home is, how you fit in, how it works. Try to have a prophetic vision so you can see where God is, where the glimpses of home are. And as you expand it, as you expand that vision, maybe you can share it with someone else. The prophet's gift is their out-of-placeness with the world. They're at home in God. They can see where God isn't with precision. Isaiah here is predicting that a king will come and expand Israel's sense of home. And Matthew is saying the same thing, that Jesus will come and redeem the whole world and, 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 and welcome in all the lonely. They will have new homes in Jesus. I needed to hear that. I, I didn't, I shared I didn't feel quite at home in my sister's house. I still don't. I came to Philadelphia very angsty um, as, a, as, a, as a teenager. I was very estranged from the church. And I, I visited some churches and campus groups and so on, trying to connect, trying to find something. And it wasn't, my, it, it wasn't working for me. I needed something else. They would sing songs that had the uh, first-person plural pronoun, so they'd say we all the time, we're doing this, we're walking in the light of God. And I, I, was, I was arrogant, so I'd say, no, I'm walking with the light of God. I don't know about all of you. I can't, you're not my family. I can't connect with you. Look at all of you. You know, it was right during the, uh, it was during the second Bush's administration, so I was very angsty. I didn't want to connect. And I needed to find a home. I needed to find a family. I couldn't do it alone. You know, and this is, I, I, I tell you this a lot because it really is so elemental to my faith. I found you. You became the home. You became the family, the place that I, the place that I, I might belong. Uh, people who, who, who were seeing what I was seeing, experiencing the same thing, so important for me. Um, I couldn't, you can't make it alone. The trouble is the world makes, isolates you, divides you up, 
and faith isn't developed and built alone. And so you're up against it. If you feel faithless, if you feel alone, if you feel like you're without a home, the world is designed to separate you and to divide you up. If we can find our sense of home in Jesus, we can invite somebody else into that. So it's okay for you to feel a little out of home here, a bit lonely, a bit misunderstood. Let's seek then to understand each other, to love each other. We won't find it in totality. The world will still give us trouble. It hated Jesus, it'll hate you too. You know, killed Jesus is where it will end up. But Jesus is bringing us home, bringing us together. Can you keep looking out for the people that, that need a people, that need a tribe, that need a home? We're looking for those people those prophetic people that need a place that they can rest, a place that they can be understood. The kingdom of God is made up of people who are otherwise lonely, dissatisfied, and alone. So if you're too comfortable, may God uh, discomfort you as you find your home in God and in us. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.